0: We are just in the early portions of our study that we've committed to of Christ in the Old Testament. What we've identified so far in our introductory studies is that um, Christ is the main theme of God's Word. Uh, We can see that clearly and obviously for anyone that's paying attention in the New Testament Scriptures, but the reality is that he's just as much the main theme in the Old Testament scriptures as he is in the New. Uh, you may have heard this saying before. I didn't. I didn't come up with it, but it's a, it's an excellent, very brief summary, and that is that in the Old Testament, the New Testament is concealed, and in the New Testament, the Old Testament is revealed. And of course the singular main theme that connects both is Christ. His person, his work, his mission, his great purpose, and how all things are ultimately summed up in him and accomplished through him. And so what we're doing is we're digging into the Old Testament to learn more about the main theme of it. And we've broken our study into three main categories. We're just starting the first category. We're looking at Old Testament prophecies anticipating Christ. We're looking at, and or we will be in the near future, looking at the actual personal appearances of Christ in the Old Testament, which we call Christophanies. And then finally, and maybe Maybe the most interesting portion of our study will be the study of the various types and shadows of Christ in the Old Testament, various persons, uh, places, things, and events that will, in some, in some uh, symbolic and important way, point forward to Him and His work. So uh, we're just digging into the prophecies of Christ, and what we've done so far is we've done two studies. On uh, messianic or or Christ specific prophecies. And those are both of our studies had to do with how Christ's nature is identified and described uh, hundreds of years before he ever arrived in this world. And in our second study in that theme, last time we looked at the prophecies of the virgin birth of Christ, uh, how he would in in some important way he would embody the name Mighty God, the name Eternal Father, how he would be revealed as the begotten Son of Yahweh, and how he in his unique and special relationship with God the Father would fill one of the two roles that's identified in Psalm 110 of there being two lords, one Lord in heaven and one on earth. And so that brings us to tonight's study. We're finished with our focus on the nature of Christ and prophecy. Now we're going to look at the character of Christ or the character of the Messiah uh, prophetically described in advance. Um, Most prophecy study, especially prophecies of Christ, um, most prophecy studies focus on the nature of the Messiah or as the ones that are ahead of us. uh, We won't get there tonight. Uh, a lot of the prophecies are focused on his mission, what he would come to accomplish. But there is an, a very important segment in between those two considerations, which is how his character is described in advance. And these character prophecies are super important for for two main reasons. One is that the Lord Jesus and the apostles both warned his people that um, following his coming, there would be the appearance of and and really, there were some that preceded his coming as well. There would be the appearance of many false prophets and many false christs, false Christ simply being someone that portrays themselves to the people of God as the true Messiah when they are not and so the question would be how do you if you 're one of the people of God living in that time of history? How do you distinguish? How do you discern? How do you know? When the true Messiah comes, it's critically important to be able to recognize him. And uh, it's certainly important to be able to recognize false messiahs for who they are so that the people are not led astray. And um, while the character prophecies aren't the only way to discern that, the prophecies on his nature, the prophecies on his mission all speak to that issue as well, One of the greatest distinguishing characteristics of the true Messiah from all the false ones is uh, understanding his true character, what he would be like. Now the second reason why the the character prophecies are important is that there was, and we've talked about this in previous studies, uh, we talked quite a bit about it as we went through the book of Matthew together, and that is that there was a strong messianic anticipation among the people of God. Because of all the prophecies, the people knew that the Lord was going to send at some unknown future date, that he was going to send a special one into the world. And he was going to fulfill a special role, a special purpose. And yet what happened among God's people is that, and this is just human nature, we all tend to do this same kind of thing, unless our hearts are are really rightly informed by a close study of all of God's Word. And that is, we all have a tendency to, as we read Scripture, to kind of glom on to the portions that are most enjoyable to us or that happen to tell the story in the way that we want to hear it. And there are portions of God's Word that tell God's story to us in the way that we want to hear it, but there are portions that tell the story to us in ways that We don't expect, we don't anticipate, and we would not naturally want the story to be told that way. And so the the reality is, by the time that Jesus actually came into the world, there was a strong messianic anticipation among the people of God, but their anticipation, remember, was they were expecting a, a, a conquering hero to arrive on the scene. And in one sense, truly, Christ is a conquering hero. But not in the sense of raising an army of followers, arming them with weapons of war, and marching against the the dominating, conquering nation of Rome that continued to oppress Israel at the time of, of Christ's arrival. That's what the people were looking forward to. That's what they were hoping for. That's what they were expecting. And when Christ showed up on the scene and he wasn't like that, Uh, It was a big hurdle for many to get over. Some did, by the grace of God, end up recognizing him for who he truly was. But they were, at the beginning, in the vast minority. The the vast majority of the people uh, didn't recognize him, didn't rightly identify him, and um, ultimately rejected him because he didn't fit the mold of what they wanted him to be like. But had they studied these portions that we're going to look at tonight... Had they been paid close attention to them, they would have at least had very little excuse for not recognizing him for who he truly was. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at seven key Old Testament prophecies of the character of Christ tonight. I say we're going to look at seven. Uh, You know how it is with me. I mean, maybe I'll get through three. Maybe I'll get through six. Maybe I'll get through the whole list, but I just want you to know I have good intentions of uh, making it through all seven. So here we go. The first one, and most of these, by the way, in fact, uh, five out of the seven on my list are from the prophecy of Isaiah. So we're just going to go through chronologically uh, uh, until we identify each one of those five. Hopefully we'll get that far at least. Uh, So Isaiah chapter 11 is the first passage I want us to focus on. And uh, this is a um, this is certainly a very important Messianic prophecy, and it was well known as a Messianic prophecy uh, at the time. That, um, And again, this Isaiah is speaking this some 700 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But he was speaking about Jesus and describing him uh, some 700 years before the fact of his birth. I'll read the first ten verses. We're not going to look at all the details in all ten verses, but uh, there are portions in these ten verses that speak um, that, about the Messiah in a way that we'll, we'll try to highlight. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of Wisdom and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. This is, this is just a bonus comment as I'm reading through this, um, having nothing directly to do with our study tonight. But starting in verse 6, Uh, Bible prophecy students of a particular school, and I'm not talking about a particular Bible college, but a particular way of viewing Bible prophecy, oftentimes see verse 6 and beyond as describing far distant future events still to us, meaning events that follow the return of the Lord, follow the second coming, and belong only to events known in their worldview of the future 1,000-year period of paradise on earth, the millennial kingdom after Jesus returns. And I don't have time to take you into all the details of why that's not accurate. This passage is in the context, though, and it should be obvious just as I'm reading through it, describing the first coming of Christ, the events that will follow the first coming, not the events that will follow the second coming. We will, later in our study of Bible prophecy of Christ in the Old Testament, we'll look at some second coming references to Christ in the Old Testament, but this is not one of them. So the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox the nursing child shall play over the whole of the cobra and the wean child shall put his hand on the adder's den they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the lord as the waters cover the sea in that day the root of Jesse who stands as a signal from the people for the peoples of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. All right, so there's just literally a ton of information, and, and uh, we could have just camped here in Isaiah 11 for our study tonight. But for the sake of getting through our list, I'm just going to try to compact and summarize the key issues that are highlighted here. First, at the very beginning of this prophecy, in verse 1, there is a, uh, there's a word picture emphasis that speaks both to the nature of the coming Messiah and the character of the coming Messiah. In terms of his nature, he's described here as, he's described as a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So what we have here is this idea that he is, in a sense, descended from Jesse Jesse, remember, was the father of King David. And this simply identifies that he's going to descend from the physical lineage of David. He's going to be, as we saw in our study last week, rightly identified as a son of David. And that's the title that the Lord Jesus most commonly um, captured from Old Testament prophecy and applied to himself as the fulfillment of those prophecies. He's the true son of David. So he's a branch, meaning the branch appears as a plant develops. It appears sometimes, sometime after the development of the plant itself. He will descend from the line of David. But he's also, um, in some critically and mysteriously important way, he's also the root of David. So he is at the same time going to be a son of man, and he is going to be a son of God because he is the one that has actually brought about the line of David through his sovereign work in history, and he is going to enter into the stream of that history and become a descendant of David himself. So both of those things are highlighted. But then there are several descriptions all the way through these early verses of chapter 11 that describe special characteristics of the Messiah, things that will set him apart from the average person, things that are that are describing who he is internally, the way he, the way he is in his interaction with people, uh, the way he treats people, the way he handles difficult circumstances, the way he responds in challenging situations where he's going to be asked to render decisions. Um, all of those things are addressed, and I'm going to give you four key words that are really highlighting different aspects of the Messiah's character taken from this passage. One, the Messiah is going to be a wise man. Now, how wise is he? Uh, do, you re- do you remember when the Lord Jesus, in, um, in making sure that his disciples did not mischaracterize him or misunderstand who he truly was, he referenced during his public ministry the story of Solomon and the remembrance of Solomon, and of course, what is what is the one thing that sets Solomon apart from all of the other characters throughout the entire Old Testament? The wisdom of Solomon, so much so that he had prayed early in his life and in his relationship with the Lord, and the Lord had answered his prayer. He didn't pray for riches, he didn't pray for power. He did pray for wisdom, and God answered that prayer and. The, the, the correct description of Solomon is up until that moment in history, he was the wisest man that had ever lived. And yet, the Lord Jesus, in referencing Solomon, and he said it in a very humble way, but a, but a truthful way. You can be both humble and truthful at the same time, and the Lord Jesus was. He said, and yet, I tell you, someone, or he, I think he said it this way something, but he's referring to a person something greater than Solomon is here. Now greater than Solomon, he certainly wasn't, the Messiah wasn't greater than Solomon in terms of natural riches. He wasn't richer than Solomon. He wasn't wasn't more powerful than Solomon in terms of being in charge of a more powerful nation. So the only appropriate comparison between the Messiah and Solomon is a comparison of wisdom. And so The question is, how wise will the Messiah be? He will be as wise as Solomon, except even greater in wisdom than Solomon. And of course, the question is, how can that possibly be? When God himself made Solomon the wisest man in all of human history, the only way to be greater than the wisest man in all of human history is to be, in a sense, the the actual source and repository of all wisdom, that there is. And so I would connect in terms of fulfillment of that passage. And when I give you fulfillment, I'm going to be giving for each one of these key passages we're looking at tonight, I'm going to give you a New Testament passage to connect to it. We won't necessarily go and turn and read it, but for those who are taking notes, if you want to make the comparison later, you can do so. Uh, Colossians chapter 2 verse 3, where Paul described that in Christ all wisdom is residing in bodily form in one single individual. Not just a lot of wisdom, not just more wisdom than the average bear, but all wisdom that's possible for anyone to possess resides in him. Now, I don't care who you are. You could be Charles Spurgeon times 10, and uh, you're still not going to reach the level of Holding in your person all wisdom unless you actually are the Messiah, the chosen one. And Christ certainly fulfills that. So he's going to be a wise man. Second, he's going to be a righteous man. And again, for each one of these characteristics, we can we can attach this question, how righteous will he be? And the answer is he's going to be more righteous than anyone that's ever lived in all of history. Uh, There are individuals throughout the Old Testament, special individuals, uh, unique individuals, individuals that were were, uh, of, of great character development and great love and great faithfulness to the Lord, who are by the Lord himself identified as righteous men. It doesn't mean that they were so righteous, though, that they had earned their own place with the Lord in all of eternity. In a sense, earned their own salvation. It simply is a comparative term as those individuals are identified as righteous, meaning in comparison to the rest of humanity, or even in comparison to the rest of God's covenant people, they stand out as being more righteous than others. So individuals like Noah are identified. Individuals like... um, Daniel is identified. Um, you know, when you, we studied through the book of Daniel together some few years ago in our Thursday studies, and we saw that there's never a single place in the story of Daniel, the book of Daniel, where any of Daniel's sins are identified. Now, we know and understand that it doesn't mean that Daniel never sinned, but it does mean that if you're telling the story of his life accurately, uh, what really comes to the forefront is, is how exceptionally righteous he was. But in this case, the Messiah will exceed even Daniel and Noah and others like them in righteousness. How righteous? Never, of course, a single time sinning. Uh, The third characteristic is that he will be just. This has to do not just with his internal sterling commitment to uh, walking in righteousness, but it has to do with how he will treat others how he will apply the laws and principles of God to circumstances that he encounters and problems that he encounters, and how he will resolve issues that come up between people that seek him for help. And so he will be exceptionally just in the way that he applies God's uh, words and God's principles to God's people. And then the fourth characteristic is that he will be faithful he will be absolutely 100% committed to God, committed to God's word, and committed to God's purposes in the way that he lives his life. And of course, um, I could attach for a fulfillment on that uh, in the New Testament, Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, in which John the apostle was given a vision of the Lord Jesus. And in that vision, he saw, in a sense, tattooed on his thigh a name which included him being identified as faithful, meaning his, his very character is linked to the uh, concept of his uh, character faithfulness. All right, so that, uh, even though there's a lot more material here, that pretty much covers the main points of the Isaiah 11 prophecy So we see that the Messiah will be wise, righteous, just, and faithful. Let's turn a little deeper into Isaiah and look at Isaiah chapter 40. 40? Yes, Isaiah 40. We'll look at just three verses in this prophecy. And this will identify something of his characteristic that's connected to his mission. It, it, it's connected in the sense that um, his, his mission is identified here in one particular aspect of how he will relate to God's people. <clears throat> but more than just identifying his mission, this passage is also going to identify for us how he will relate to God's people. And that characteristic is something that is intended to uh, give great comfort to the people of God in anticipation of his arrival. So much so that looking at verse 1 of chapter 40, the main theme of the chapter is uh, the Lord speaking through the prophet saying, comfort, comfort my people, says your God, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem here is just representing the assembled people of God. So the the main point of all that's in this chapter is the Lord speaking a comforting message to His people, but He does so in a prophecy starting in verse nine. So let's look at Isaiah forty, verse nine. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Just to briefly explain that imagery, uh, Zion is a familiar characterization of the capital city of the people of God. Zion equals Jerusalem, and Jerusalem equals Zion. But as Zion was being spiritually described, and we're not talking so much here about physical geography, we're talking about a, a real physical place, Jerusalem, but we're describing it using a spiritual description. I I say we are. The Lord is describing it using a spiritual description so that he's coaching, in a sense, the people of God to look at Jerusalem, but not just with natural eyes, not just with natural perspective, to see beyond the, the physical obvious things and to see how the Lord sees Jerusalem. And here, Zion is situated on a high mountain. In fact, in another passage, another prophetic passage, Zion is described as being beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth. And in that sense, Zion is being described as if it were Mount Everest. Now, for those who are physical mountain climbers, uh, there are actual mountains in the city of Jerusalem. They're still there to this day. Jerusalem is built on mountainous terrain. But if you're a, a, you know, you're a person that is seeking out physical challenges and you have two options in front of you, I can go climb the mountains in Jerusalem or I can go climb Mount Everest, uh, the Himalayan mountains. Uh, which is the greater physical challenge? By far, the Himalayas are much higher in physical elevation. But how much has God revealed to this world from the headquarters or the basis of the Himalayan mountains or Mount Everest, which is commonly identified as the highest physical mountain in geographic elevation in the entire world, some 29,000 and change feet. Much, much, much higher than the physical dimensions of the mountains in Jerusalem. How much has God revealed from the highest mountain on the face of the earth? Well, in modern times, there have been a number of people that have successfully climbed to the summit, and they've taken cameras with them, and they've taken photographs of the surrounding area. They've taken videos. And so there's some physical beauty that's revealed from the summit of Mount Zion. I mean, excuse me, Mount Everest. But uh, that's it. That's the full extent. But what God has revealed from the summit of Zion is something much, much greater. And so that's the setting here. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. So what is he revealed from Zion? He's picturing Zion both as a mountain, but also as a messenger. He calls Zion the city, which is situated on the spiritual mount. Everest of the world, Jerusalem, at that time in history, because God had chosen to reveal everything that he was revealing to the people of the earth through Jerusalem. He says, going up to a high mountain of Zion, herald of good news. And here, Zion itself, the assembled and and corporate people of God, are being identified as a messenger sent by God with a special message. And what is that special message? good news. What we call now, in the fullness of New New Testament context, we call it the gospel. We call it the message of salvation because gospel, as you know, actually translates good news. So go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, Say to the cities of Judah, and here's now the message. Here's the gospel message as Isaiah is prophetically proclaiming it. Behold your God. The idea being that there's going to be a new and greater revelation of God than has ever been revealed in all of history preceding it. What is that new and greater revelation of God? It's going to be the arrival of the Messiah into this world. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Now this is what I call, if you're a, Let's say you're watching a really good movie, and you're like really engaged in the story because it's a super well-told story. And the story is unfolding along an identifiable, recognizable theme. You go, okay, I know where this story is heading. And then at the key moment of the movie, somewhere maybe halfway through or two-thirds of the way through, there's a sudden, unexpected twist in the story. And it shocks you, but it draws you further into the story because the story actually was seeming to be leading a specific direction, but then suddenly it took this turn that you didn't anticipate and you go, oh, wow, it it totally caught me off guard, but the story's even better now. And that's exactly what the Lord does in this prophecy. He's telling a story. He's telling in advance. And what he's telling his people, 700 years before the story actually happens, you're going to think that the story is going this direction, but there's going to be a shocking twist as the story unfolds, and it will catch you off guard. And if you're not watching for it, you'll miss it when it happens. And of course, what happened was the Messiah entered the world, and the story was developing along a certain line, and the people were expecting a certain ending. And there was this shocking twist as Jesus began his public ministry, and it caught people off guard because they failed to see exactly what the Lord had described. So, what's the theme that they were anticipating? Behold, your God, behold, the Lord God comes with what? The Lord God comes in verse 10 with what? With might. And his arm rules for him. And behold, his reward is with him and his recompense is before him. What they were expecting based on this early description in verse 10 is the Messiah is going to come as a conquering king. And he's going to take over the whole world. And when he does, he's going to hold everybody accountable. And he's going to set everything right. And all of that is true except they stopped reading, basically, in verse 10, and failed to read on into verse 11. Because everything in its proper order, everything as the Lord wants it to unfold, verse 11 doesn't fit, apparently, easily, with verse 10. Verse 10 is describing the, the arrival of a conquering king, but in verse 11, In a shocking twist, the conquering king is actually, when he arrives, more like a tender-hearted shepherd. And they stopped at the conquering king part and missed the tender-hearted shepherd, the one who would tend his flock like a shepherd, who would gather the lambs in his arms, who would carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. That doesn't seem like a conquering story, does it? seems like something entirely different, and so later in the Gospel of John chapter ten, um, you can if you want specific verses, you can look at verses fourteen and fifteen, but really all of John chapter ten is focused on this theme. Jesus reveals himself as the good shepherd, the good shepherd that 's come to to call his sheep to himself and to lead them in exactly the way that Isaiah Chapter forty, verse eleven, had described, and how he would uh, display the characteristics of of gentleness, of faithful leadership, of of restoring those that are that are hurting and and healing up the brokenhearted among the flock that are his people. And I would link, by the way, this Isaiah forty passage with a very very familiar psalm which is not commonly viewed as a messianic psalm, but I actually believe that it is, which is Psalm 23, the shepherd psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And all of the things that are describing the activity of the shepherd and the heart of the shepherd for his sheep and how he cares for them, how he leads them, how he guides them, how he protects them, how he watches over them, how he restores them when they're hurting, how he, he uh, heals them when they have, when they have need. All right, so um, let's move on to another one, just a couple of chapters deeper in. Isaiah chapter 42 now. Isaiah 42, we'll read the first four verses, and this is one of my personal favorites. I mean, you know how it is when you're dealing with the Word of God, and all of these are just literally wonderful passages describing the character of our Lord and Savior. It's hard to say, well, this one's better than this other one. So I'm not going to describe this one as being better than any of the others. It's just some of them speak more directly to our hearts at different moments in our lives. And this one certainly speaks uh, to my heart in that way. I hope it will to yours as well. Uh, We'll read the first four verses of Isaiah 42. This is uh, a description as the ESV describes it as the Lord's chosen servant So we could call this the prophecy of the Lord's chosen servant. The Lord is speaking through Isaiah to his people. He says, Behold my servant whom I uphold. And so the Lord is introducing. When he says behold, he's basically pointing with his words. And he's pointing in a specific direction. And here he's pointing at someone in history that he identifies as my servant. Now, there are in human history many true servants of the Lord, but here the Lord is distinguishing this one individual above all others that truly serve him. So you could say Noah was a true servant of the Lord, Abraham was a true servant of the Lord, Moses, Aaron were true servants of the Lord, Uh, King David was a true servant of the Lord, and on and on and on throughout uh, the the most important characters in, in Old Testament history. But this one, the Lord says, this one is my servant so much so that I'm pointing him out to you. I want you to notice him. I want you to be able to recognize him. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen. This is why we distinguish this one among all the servants. My chosen in whom my soul delights. Now every single one of the other servants of the Lord, even the truest, even the most faithful. Every single one of them had at least one moment where the Lord's soul did not delight in them because of some character flaw in them and the way they lived their lives. But in this one, this servant of the Lord, this chosen one, is going to be a consistent delight to the heart of God the Father. My chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint Or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. So what can we say about the character of the Messiah from this passage? These words um, come to my mind as I read this passage. The Messiah will be exceptionally just. We've seen that characteristic highlighted already. Uh, he will be compassionate, in other words, tender hearted toward those who most need that from him he'll be gentle toward the people of the Lord he'll be faithful above all else to the Lord himself and he 'll be committed to the fulfillment of god 's plan, purposes, and assignment, no matter what resistance he meets and has to deal with. Now the fulfillment you can find highlighted, particularly by Matthew and his gospel, in chapter 12, verses 15 through 21. I won't take us there. We studied it in detail when we went through the gospel of Matthew together. But you might recognize certain wording. And Jesus himself quotes this Isaiah 42 prophecy and applies it to himself to make sure that his disciples and us through their ears and eyes, are able to recognize him in this passage as the one who fulfills it. But the specific portion of it that he quoted is in verse 3. And I think this speaks very directly and uh, powerfully to his character. This is what the Messiah will be like as he ministers to people. And it's a word picture, a double word picture, very... uh, it's just a, it's a beautiful word picture. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Now, the question, and I don't think anybody is going to miss this, but just to make sure, uh, the question is, is the Messiah actually be, going to be concerned about reeds and wicks? You know, like, okay, I'm here in this world to accomplish a special mission for God. And the one thing I really want to pay attention to, you know what a reed is, right? What is a reed? It's a it's a st- it's a tall stalk of of very sturdy grass that grows normally by the riversides in uh that part of the world. And wicks, uh we still use them somewhat today, but not as much as they did in the ancient world. That's that little cloth uh portion that's That's part of the function of a lamp, and it's the wick that you actually light as one end of it is in the oil and one end of it is burning to shine light and actually cause the lamp to function as it should. So, is the Messiah's purpose in the world to make sure that the grass by the riverside and the little piece of cloth in the lamps is not actually damaged? Is that the point of the prophecy? And the answer is, of course not. He's using reeds and wicks to describe certain people what people is he describing he's describing what we would call hurting people broken people needy people damaged people because the the reed that's being described here is a bruised reed the idea being before the messiah even arrives at the riverside where the reed is growing some circumstance in the world surrounding that reed has bruised it now how could a reed po- possibly get bruised could be the wind could be an animal coming to drink at the river and walking through the reeds and trampling on the reed if you know if it's a, an ox that comes to the riverside and it tramples on the reed he's going to bruise the reeds that are in his way to get to the water and what's the problem with the bruised reed? The bruised reed now is vulnerable, is vulnerable to losing the remaining structural integrity that keeps it from just bending completely over and being completely broken. All right, And then the second image is that of the wick. And here it's described in the ESV as a faintly burning wick, but other translations describe it as a smoking wick or a smoldering wick, meaning that there's not a full flame that's evident from this wick, but it's kind of it's kind there was a flame at some point, but now the wick is diminished in its in it in the fire that it was holding. And now there's just maybe just a little bit of a spark left and there's some smoke rising from the wick. And with the wick, um what can happen at this point is it can be brought back to full flame and therefore fulfill its purpose, or it can be fully extinguished in this moment. So those are the two options. And with the bruised reed, um, the idea is it can either be, in a sense, shored up so that it doesn't totally break, or it can be further damaged so that it ends up completely breaking. So why does the Lord include this imagery here? includes this imagery because he wants his people to understand that he understands their life circumstances. What is their life circumstance? Everybody's life is different. Everybody lives through a different set of circumstances, but there's one common experience to every one of our lives that we all share without exception. What is that? We live in a broken world, And the world is broken before we ever got here. So the first breath we take is in a broken world. And the second breath we take is in a broken world. And every breath we will ever take this side of heaven is in a broken world. And it's broken because of sin. And we have actually contributed to its brokenness. We didn't arrive into the world and turn the tide and make it much less broken because we just weren't like the rest of the world. We jumped into the world and we just joined the party of brokenness and contributed to not just making ourselves even more broken, but contributing toward bruising others and extinguishing others around us. And so this is the common experience of humanity and Jesus is going to enter a world that is that broken and he's going to come for the purpose of ministering to people and the people that he ministers to he recognizes are like this but he wants his people to know before he ever gets there before he ever enters the world that he understands the world in which they live and he understands how they've been impacted by the sin that fills that world. And this is what he is going to be like. You're bruised by sin, he's not going to break you. You're smoldering because of the effects of sin in your life, he's not going to extinguish what little spark of life may be there. And of course, we're not talking about um, that you've had you're in some sense partly saved, but the idea being that. There is something of an awareness of eternity that God has placed in each heart and he is not going to extinguish or quench that. He is coming to bring that to full flame and he is coming to heal the bruised reeds when no one else actually can. It's just a wonderful image that describes how he is going to enter the world as a true healer and as a true savior. All right, let's look at another one. Now uh, a few chapters further. Uh, Isaiah 50. And this is one of two prophecies in Isaiah that we can rightly describe as the prophecy of the suffering servant. Isaiah chapter 15, we'll read verses 5 and 6. The Lord God has opened my ear. Now this is Isaiah speaking these words, and they're words of prayer. But he's really speaking as if he were the Messiah. Now Isaiah, of course, is not the Messiah, but he's speaking prophetically. And this is is a description of how the Messiah will understand his own special role and assignment in God's world at the moment of history that he enters the world. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. you remember the uh, passage in Isaiah 53 that says all we like sheep have done what? Gone astray. We've turned every one of us where? To his own way. Every other human being from Adam forward in all of human history has lived a rebellious life. He, the Messiah, is the lone exception to that principle. I was not rebellious, is his true testimony. I turned not backward, and where did his pathway then of not being rebellious and not turning his back on God's calling and purpose and assignment for him, where did that pathway lead him? Verse 6, I gave my back to those who strike. In my cheeks, to those who pulled out, pull out the beard, I hid not my face from disgrace and spinning. Now of course, um, this is a description of where the Messiah's story in this world would end. His story didn't end in this world, but it's where his natural life, so to speak, in this world would end. It would end with his uh, betrayal, with his unjust and unrighteous arrest with his his uh, false trial, false in the sense of false testimony and false accusation and false conviction, uh, unjust conviction, but it, that would of course then inevitably lead to his execution. But between his arrest and his execution he was subjected to torment by those that held him in captivity. and They did things to him like beat him in the face and and uh, pull out some of the hair of his beard and spit in his face and things of that nature. Uh, that's described for us in more than one place in the New Testament um, Gospels, but I'll give you two that we studied, Matthew twenty-six, sixty-seven, 67, and Matthew 27, verse 26. And uh, so what can we say about the Messiah's character? He's not rebellious. So his character is pristine. His character is the exceptional character of all the men and women that have ever lived in this world. Never once rebellious, never a moment of rebellion in his life. And his character is, is uh, one of uh, an exceptional commitment and submission to the will of God, no matter what it will personally cost him. And it did cost him everything. All right, our last one in Isaiah, and we'll have just enough time for this one, I think. Isaiah 53. This is the second. This is the most famous one. It's the most famous of the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah. And uh, it's kind of like the, uh, the culminating messianic prophecy in Isaiah. And this is also rightly described as the prophecy of the suffering servant. It really starts at the end of chapter 52, Uh, But I will read, rather than starting in verse 13 of chapter 52, you can read that in your own time, 13 through 15. I'll start reading just in the first seven verses of Isaiah 53, even though the whole chapter applies to the Messiah. Isaiah 53, 1, who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. The idea there being that Israel, the people of God, were like dry ground at that time in history. And he was the living plant that took root even though something as wonderful as him should never have been able to grow out of that kind of ground. Um, if you've been over to my house recently and if you've been uh, into my backyard uh, and, and beheld the, the beauty of my Backyard lawn. I, I say that facetiously because I have literally no grass in my backyard. I just—it's just hard, compacted dirt, and um, it would be shocking to me. It literally would shock me. It would have to be something in the in the realm of, of miraculous if some beautiful plant just suddenly sprouted out of that ground, because literally nothing can grow there anymore. Uh, that's what's being described here, like a root out of dry ground. How in the world did the beauty of the messianic figure spring out of the hardened, compacted, dry ground of Israel at that moment in history? And then this description of him. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely, and this is now speaking more directly to his mission rather than his character, both things are addressed in this passage though, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And as I said, the rest of the chapter, just like the portion at the end of chapter fifty-two, uh, continues to speak about different characteristics, or in terms of the mission and purpose of the Messiah. And then the remaining verses that I haven't read are going to speak to the the uh, the fruit of the accomplishment of his mission. So we'll we'll come back to those portions as we dig deeper into Bible prophecy in another one of our studies. But what does this passage, the first seven verses, what does it highlight about the Messiah? And again, this is the twist in the story. They were expecting a conquering king. Instead, the one that arrived was like this. And this was A portion that was meant by the Lord to be applied to describe the Messiah in advance. And what Israel did instead, and they were led down this pathway of misunderstanding by the rabbis and the teachers that taught the people of God in the Old Testament era, they interpreted, and still to this day, rabbis that do not believe that Jesus ever actually was the Messiah and misinterpret this passage in this way They see verses 1-7 through of Isaiah 53, not as describing the Messiah, but as describing Israel itself. Meaning, Israel is the true servant of the Lord. Israel is the one that's had to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous historical fortune over and over and over and over again through history. Missing the fact that how in the world could Israel have borne our griefs and our sorrows and have died for our salvation, crushed for our iniquity, pierced for our transgressions. If they really believe that that's the story of Israel, then they would be essentially proclaiming and believing that Israel had come to save the Gentile nations by sacrificing themselves for the unbelieving Gentiles. But they certainly don't believe that. So they just kind of misunderstood the passage altogether. But it really is a description of the Messiah. And what's highlighted is, number one, he's going to be an exceptionally humble man. Exceptionally humble man. You remember the description of Moses. And this is the Lord's testimony, so you know it's an absolutely true one. He was described by the Lord himself. And what a testimony. I mean, the Lord will never describe me this way. And he would probably never describe you this way either. But he did describe Moses this way. At that time in history, Moses was the most humble man on the face of the earth. What a blessing it would be to hear the Lord say that about you. But the Messiah will be more deeply and truly humble than even Moses, because Moses had proud moments, one of which led him to have to die in the wilderness and not enter the promised land because he was so outraged in his pride that he Well, I don't want to go into the whole story of Moses and how that story ended. But the point being that as humble as Moses was, and he truly was, he's not as humble as the Messiah will be and actually is. Where do we get humility here? There's no majesty that we should look at him, as Isaiah described it. There's nothing majestic in his outward, just as you observe him passing through the world, There's nothing that you would look at and say that's a majestic figure. I uh, I saw a clip on TV just recently, and it reminded me of a you know because it was a just a clip from a movie that my parents had taken me to see when I was very very young. It was really impressive to me when I was very very young, and it's still an impressive scene. But it's taken from the movie Cleopatra, which is done in the very early 60s with Elizabeth Taylor in the role of Cleopatra and Richard Burton in the role of uh, her Roman uh, general lover, um, Mark Antony. And uh, Julius Caesar is involved in the whole story as well. Anyway, this scene is the entrance of Cleopatra into Rome. She's been called to Rome. She's the queen of Egypt. She's been called to Rome. So she enters in. And how do you suppose Cleopatra's in the in the in the way the movie portrays her anyway, how she enters into Rome, it's it, it's like one of the most expensive scenes that's ever been filmed in movie history, because there was no computer graphics, no CGI. Uh, they had to do it all with extras, and they built this gigantic kind of what we would call like in the Rose Parade a float. They built this gigantic float that she was uh, being carried on by. By dozens and dozens of slaves carrying this float on their shoulders, and uh, they're pulling and carrying this float into uh, the 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 entrance to the throne room of Caesar in Rome, and it's this ostentatious kind of the, everything about her entrance is signaling. Cleopatra is special. Cleopatra is great. Cleopatra is someone to pay attention to. Now, how did and you know the story? How did Jesus enter the world in comparison to Cleopatra's entrance into Rome? He, you know, he came to, you know, a, a, a feeding trough of a of an animal stable in Bethlehem, and um, it didn't get any more majestic after that for him. The only majesty that is attached to him is when his mission in this world is fully accomplished. And as we recently studied, he returns in his ascension to heaven and sits down upon the most majestic location in the face, or in, the, uh, in the midst of all of history and all of existence itself, the throne of God. So there's, there's ultimate humility, no majesty that we should look at him. He's unappealing physically, no beauty that we should desire him. I don't think the passage means that, that Jesus was what we would call an ugly man in terms of his features. The question is, what did he look like? No one knows. No one has any idea. I don't care how many paintings have been painted, you know, portraying Jesus or, or, or seeming to represent his physical characteristics. No one has any clue. There's not a single description of his physical characteristics other than this one, which just tells us that there is no form that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. Nothing particularly noticeable or appealing. No, he didn't come in with this super charismatic persona to just draw people magnetically to him or by his physical appearance. He's despised, it's described, meaning as far as the world was concerned, as far as the general population was concerned, he was unworthy of their attention beneath their notice, even though he was without question the most important person that had ever lived or would ever live. And then finally in the passage, he's identified as silent. And what does that tell us? Silent when when it was when his life was on the line, when the final determination was being made as to, Whether we're going to execute this man, or whether will he defend himself, and maybe if he makes a powerful self-defense, maybe if his oratory in that key moment is so convincing, maybe we'll let him go free. He chooses to be silent, which tells us that he was ultimately secure in who he was and what he was here to accomplish. So secure that he he was not moved at all to defend himself. He was willing to see the will of God through to its bitter end. And he never once, though he was commonly and regularly attacked by the religious leaders of the day and those that they were influencing, did he ever once respond in kind or lash out at them in kind of an emotional outburst, a reaction to how he had been attacked or his reputation had been attacked. Never once lashed out in that way. So we see the fulfillment in the New Testament. I'll give you a couple of passages. Matthew 27, verse 14. And the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. All right, so we only made it through five of our list. I'm not going to do a whole study for the other two. I'll just give you these without uh, reading them and uh, without uh, actually taking us to the passage The last two on my list were Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine, which describes the arrival of the King in the city of Jerusalem, and it actually is a prophecy of a specific moment in the ministry of Jesus, which we call the uh, the um, the entry of the Lord Jesus on the um, on the day that is called Palm Sunday, the 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 beginning of the final week of His life and ministry in this world. Uh, that's fulfilled clearly in Matthew chapter 21 verses 4 and 5. But in Zechariah's prophecy, what's, what's uh, noticeable about it and notable about it is that he will ride in on the foal of a donkey. So he's coming not in a, in a grand chariot, he's not coming on a war horse, he's coming in the most humble and um, lowly conveyance that is possible for a king to ride on. And then the final one we also studied in our study through Daniel, Daniel chapter 9 verse 24. This is part of the prophecy of the 70 weeks in which the Messiah is identified as uh, the Holy One. And uh, the 70 weeks would not be ultimately fulfilled until the Most Holy One is anointed. And this was fulfilled, of course, in Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, at the baptism of Jesus at the beginning of his public ministry, when John the Baptist baptized him and then was there to witness and testify to others that God the Father caused the Spirit of God to descend upon him and remain upon him in the visible form of a dove. And God spoke his own testimony about his son at that moment by speaking from heaven and saying, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. All right, so that ends our study on the character of Christ in prophecy. Where we'll go next Thursday night in uh, continuing to look at other prophecies is we'll look at prophecies of the first coming of Christ, and there are a bunch of them. So I'll try to move a little bit faster as we work our way through those, or we'll never get anywhere close to being uh, through our list. Prophecies of the first coming, Lord willing, next week.